This is episode number 12 of Let's Talk Retouching, the retouching and post-production podcast. Today we are going to continue our conversation with New York City photographer Erika Barker, so stay tuned. The show is brought to you by BoutiqueRetouching.com and LearnPostProduction.com, a school we will eventually launch and teach you all things about post-production. If you want to find out more and read the show description, head over to boutiqueretouching.com forward slash podcast. And now let's jump right back into the interview with Erica Barker. So Erica, when you sit down to do your post-production and retouching, which devices help you get your job done? Which hardware are you using? First, let's maybe talk about The computer that you're using are using Mac, are using Windows, and maybe why you prefer one over the other. I know it's a hot topic to talk about it, but um, I don't think it's so much of a hot topic. I mean, I personally retouch on a PC now. I built a PC last year. I don't have a Quadro card in it, but I have an NVIDIA GTX 1080 Ti card in it, which nice. works beautifully with creative cloud and i have like 128 gigs a six core processor in it that's overclocked uh, each core is running at 4.1 gigahertz uh-huh how does it come like usually and no offense here but most women they're not as technical when it comes to computers and overclocking and getting into the details of the machine that much uh well daniel the times are changing and there are a lot of women who are getting more and more into tech and are very, very savvy. I, uh, I know women who are system administrators who, you know, are just as savvy setting up AWS. But for me, it's like I've always messed with computers since I've been five years old. So that's 30 years of computer experience. <laughs> True. But, you know, it's like I, I kind of think that I know a lot of my female photographer friends who or retoucher friends, uh, they just know their one thing, but they have no technical mm -hmm. understanding. But at the same time, I have a lot of guy friends who are the exact same way. True. They have a computer, and <laughs> they save everything to their desktop. Oh. Uh, they, they don't understand how the, what the cloud is or have any like you know practical backup yeah. solutions. So the times are changing. More women are in tech, but you know at the same time, I see a lot of men who don't understand tech as well, yeah. who are working in some technical aspect of the industry. Yeah, I mean, I think we have grown into a society that has to be more knowledgeable than the generation before in this field. I remember when we were younger. Dealing with word processor was like a big thing. So if you could do this and could use a computer and could use a mouse. But now I think we're digital natives, so to speak. Like, I mean, the younger generation right. even more. But the, now we are in the situation that we went through the progress and, and the changes. And maybe the younger generation, they don't even know what a phone is. So they might end up lacking a little bit of the knowledge where things came from which I think is still really valuable um, when it comes to technology to know where things started and how things progressed into what they are now and to think about where things could be going and to be open for it. Right. The more we get away from manual labor or the more, for instance, like photography, the more of the manual process that you eliminate the more we have to evolve more like into a creative mindset that understands all the processes, even the history mm -hmm. in order to properly execute and stay up with the times. And, you know, you know, I think uh, we're coming to a time set where like everybody, they're going to get paid to think you're going to yeah. be professional problem solvers. Everybody's going to be a problem solver, not somebody who just puts this thing to this thing and you know uh, screws it because robots will be handling that so yeah. but the same definitely goes for our industry as well yeah i think that's pretty much true and when we see how camera technology has evolved and where retouching started super basic and now we have this split between optimization using enhanced codes and uh, applications that should help you retouch versus 
a super refined manual process still. So we have to see where things might be going. And one, like the super manual approach at some point will be going away. But we're still at a point where we have to make the creative decisions and some of them technology cannot do for us, right? Right, right. And, uh, you know, it kind of scares me a little bit as a content creator. I know that a computer and AI can, at least I believe, cannot do what we do. We have this organic problem-solving brain that can only problem-solve for fellow human beings because art is so insanely subjective. Mm -hmm. A computer needs order. It needs law. It needs to understand like certain things, and it will repeat those steps over and over. So it can never understand how to problem-solve from a subjective, organic perspective. When uh, the thing that does scare me is if you listen to like a lot of the music nowadays, yeah. <laughs> like in the music industry, I mean, it's getting to the point where really bad music has been pushed in the mainstream that's really easy to produce. And, you know, you take somebody who's on the scale of Mozart, who really has a high IQ and understands musical theory and can create these amazing musical compositions. And now you got a kid who has no idea what musical understanding is, is able to go and click and spend like about an hour, doesn't really understand poetry, doesn't understand how to rhyme, doesn't understand how to sing, and the computer's doing most of it. And now all of a sudden, this is the thing that you know everybody wants to listen to because the mainstream has been able to push this on the people on the dance floors and make people so gullible. I'm, I do worry about something like that happening in our industry mm. and all of a sudden terrible retouching and touching with Facetune, like the app, yeah. uh, and just having overexposed photos will become the thing that you see on Vogue magazine and Vanity Fair. I do worry about that happening. I hope it does not happen, but you watch the music industry and it makes you kind of wonder. Well, the music industry has auto-tune and for photography, there's still no auto-tune. In other words, the mass general public, they're losing their good taste. They no longer right. have good taste and understanding and comprehension right. of what good art or what good music is. And I think part of the problem here is um, that with the times of the internet, we have such a fluctuation of information and uh, images coming through every day in a pace that we have never encountered before that makes you pay less attention to detail i would say and also forces content creators to create more and more and more and that results in a lack of quality yeah i think that might result in a drop in retouching and photography quality to be seen as valuable in the, in the general public but when i now think back to like the 90s and in terms of retouching i think we made quite some progress into advertising that might look more natural, which is a good thing. And we have like in France, they have laws now that uh, when images have been manipulated, they have to tag them as retouched in advertising. I mean, it's debatable if that is the best thing to do or not, because avoiding retouching, they're just making sure, okay, it's on there and people just go with it and people get used to it. So, yeah. Well, you know, it's just, I have a strong belief that, uh, you know, a lot of problems with society is just, you know, poor upbringing and poor parenting. You know, on the retouching perspective and what France has done, it's like, okay, I understand it. But what is the percentage? What is the data? Uh, what, what percentage of the women population is really starving themselves and not eating? Uh, it's just we never hear about those numbers. And I think, you know, sometimes governments rush too quickly to make laws. But I do think governments rush too quickly to make laws based on very small, minute case scenarios. And those laws end up creating a little bit more trouble than what happened before that law was in place. With retouching, I believe it's a very important part of marketing it's what makes certain things uh, like more appealable. It makes it seem surreal and it helps people envision what it looks like in their life. I think it's quite silly what, you know, creating a law that says something needs to be retouched. Obviously, 
there are retouching studios that makes a, a beautiful 120 pound girl who's five foot nine and they shrink her with the liquify tool by more than like 50 percent I mean, most people could obviously say that somebody is not actually this skinny. This is not beautiful. This is not appealable. And I don't think like uh, curls, for instance, in school, they're getting most of their influence from what's being marketed in magazines from bad retouching that you see on a small percentage of the time. It's other girls in their high school because girls can be very mean in high school. Yeah, yeah there's a lot yeah, of social anyways, pressure going on in school. Yeah, exactly, exactly. During the time when you have to find out for yourself who you are. If anything, government should spend, especially here in America, government should spend more time and resources and thought and problem solving into getting people to eat healthier and push a healthier agenda. The fashion industry, they use skinny models because the clothes look best on the skinny models. The models should look like they're not taking away from the actual designer's clothing line. But uh, saying that, they could use like maybe somebody who's got more muscles on them. Like I think Hillary Rhoda, Giselle Bunchen, definitely the Victoria's Secret models. That's ideal beauty. All of those models are constantly in the gym. They're constantly promoting healthy lifestyle and healthy eating. And I think anybody in the world, regardless of your sexual preference, can agree that those are incredibly beautiful women that could model anything. Yeah, so I, I and you know it, it can get into a complicated subject, but I think like uh, definitely like people could focus more on being healthy, and I think that is coming. Yeah, which a topic that is a little bit contradicting here is like you have these supermodels and they might appear on a show or in a magazine, and then most children or or teenagers they spend their time on the internet and what's going on on Instagram. So it's debatable the influence it has when you push girls that are not super skinny and not super tall, and just a regular girl, and they put tons of makeup on them and they always take a hundred selfies to find the best one. So, and that represents or how they represent life and which influences the other girls around them. And I think that's also not necessarily the most helpful thing. I think we as maybe parents or as a, a, a culture, we still have to figure out ways how to make this work and how to educate our children and n not suffer from these social media behavior of always showing an idealistic world of ours. Yeah, it's like I think if parenting wanted to be fixed until your child turns 18 years old, <laughs> Give them a flip phone. Do not give them a smartphone. <laughs> uh, and then you, they can have an iPad when they get home, but when they're on the road, they're missing so many experiences because their faces are buried in these little, little devices. I remember when I was a kid before smartphones came out, the world just seemed so much more magical, Like especially as a teenager and somebody who is in my early 20s. The world seems so magical uh, without these devices, and I absorbed more information. I was emerged more in the experiences and places that I went. And I feel even myself, I am buried in my phone constantly uh, myself, and I feel like I appreciate the world less and surroundings. And this is definitely got uh, to be true for you know young kids today. And it's sad. Uh, it's sad, really. So if I were to have kids. I'm sorry, uh, you're not getting a smartphone until you're 18 years old. You can go buy it on your own. But until then, you're carrying this little flip phone where I can call yeah. you and you will always answer when that phone rings. Yeah, <laughs> and you have to put the phone actually on your ear to talk, right? Uh, yeah, oh, God, that's something I can't stand. It's like people walking around like with their conversation here in New York and they're, they got this. It's like they, they have to make the extra step. It's like it's, it's easier to just pick up the phone, put it up by your ear, but no, they have to take the extra step to hit the speaker button yeah. and a crowd, and then they have to, one, take the phone, put it near where the microphone is, near their mouth, then they like listen to the person, move the phone away from their face, then they take it, put it back near their mouth. It's like, what's wrong with you? Just use the phone the way it was meant. It would require less muscle movement. <laughs> Maybe it's a way to exercise a little bit in yeah. public. So yeah, but I, I, I've, I've seen that as well and I don't understand it. But I assume that maybe younger generations, sometimes they don't know a phone that 
is supposed to go on your ear and the microphone part in front of your mouth. So remember the Bluetooth ear sets that people used to wear uh, around like 10, 12 years ago, 15 yeah. years ago, like little Bluetooth earpieces. Mm -hmm. That I miss those days. That was where that was where it was at. <laughs> yeah, now yeah, we have like, earpods and all that stuff, and which is also like sometimes cables get in the way. But still, like in photography, we are a little bit behind. So we need cables and all this stuff. We are far away from with, with the high megapixel cameras to transfer wirelessly. I mean, there's always issues in transmission and you don't want to lose images because of the transmission going bad. And yeah, so let's get back to the computer world. What are you using in terms of retouching? Okay, as you heard before, it's super overclocked. It's a really powerful machine, 128 gigs of RAM. And a lot of people think, Erica, that is just overkill. You will never use that much RAM. You will never use that GPU the way it was supposed to be. Well, one, I'm also a gamer. So, <laughs> but that ignoring that, I mean, when I'm editing like a Hasselblad file and I have about 40 layers stacked and I edit in 16-bit. I always edit in 16-bit. Yeah. That is just my workflow. I've been, you know, people question me. They're like, why do you do that? I have my reasons for it, which I can get into later if you want. True. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, but some of my artwork and some of my uh, photography that I've retouched will get up to four gigs in mm -hmm. size. And when you're editing, like, say, a 50 or 60 megapixel image, and you break out the liquify tool or oh, yeah. you want to set something to you want to turn a layer into a smart object you need a ton of horsepower and the reason why i switched from a max to pc was because even the best macbook pro out there couldn't handle my workflow yeah. so i needed to have some serious horsepower with how i was retouching and how i was doing my compositing work yeah it seems like at current state apple does not offer anything that powerful as you can get in a PC world. Yeah, yeah, it, it's sad too. I mean, I really, I my machine before this was an iMac and, uh, you know, I, I had all Macintosh computers around and I my argument back in the day was, well, Macs are better than PCs because you can install Windows and, True. you know, you can have the best of both worlds. But yeah, now it's like we're getting back to a time where PCs are starting to reach out and reach the needs of creatives better than Mac is. I, it sounds like uh, Apple is just, ever since they changed uh, Final Cut Pro to uh, Final Cut Pro X, it feels like that was the day they were like, we don't care about you creatives anymore. We just want normal, mediocre people who can just want to like make little funny things for their friends. Also, with photography, wasn't there uh, Aperture? Yeah, what happened with that? I actually really enjoyed Aperture. Uh, the way it did uh, raw processing, oh, buddy, it was killing Lightroom back in the day. It uh, the colors were just gorgeous and beautiful. But uh, yeah, they 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 left out. Thank goodness we have Capture One, and Lightroom is not not the only tool in town. Yeah, we have much more competition than um, like some have gone away. Like the Apple, uh, they might have been shifting to more the general customer. But in our field, we also like discovered, or we also have a little bit more competition now uh, in software and in hardware than than like a few years. I mean, cameras we always had a certain amount of competition going on, but especially in the software world, it's getting more exciting where things are going, especially with all the possibilities and the optimization that might come in the future with AI and all that stuff. So, um, I do think that we are approaching another renaissance era or a golden era uh, when it comes to PC technology. And the a reason why I say that is you look at AMD, mm. who just came out of nowhere and their stock is like doubled in a year. Yeah. All of a sudden uh, they release a 32 core processor and Intel has discovered, hey, you know what? We have to compete. Now now Intel actually has a competitor. True, yeah. For the past 10 years, it hasn't really been the case, right? Yeah, and we kind of stagnated for the last 10 years. Now AMD is back. I am loving it. AMD is making some really insane stuff. So even my computer that I have now, as fast as as it is, if I was to buy like AMD's new top of the line stuff, it would, I would, my machine would be insanely sick. Yeah. But 
uh, you know, you have new things like Intel Optane, which is changing the way we're going to be storing data. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's so insanely fast. And not saying that, you know, fast is going to create better work. But in my case, you know, it it, it definitely makes me happy to uh, see all this and all this new beautiful hardware that's coming out because AMD is out now, it doesn't mean it's going to be really, really expensive. You can probably build yourself a really good, decent machine, well, at least here in the United States, for like probably 400 to $500 if you can do that. I think that could probably be about uh, 380 to 480 euros. Yeah, yeah, that could be. And just recently, I think yesterday, just watched a video, and it's true, like, Looking at phones, they, there's no progress basically for the last eight years or something. It's the same concept over and over again, and nothing has happened. And just by AMD putting out the Threadripper and, and all that stuff, there's some decent competition in there. And yeah, it's gotten a little bit more exciting just recently where things might go. Yeah, and definitely, uh, definitely with like cloud computing as well. It's going to be interesting to see where like. Things like Amazon, AWS, and Microsoft Azure mm-hmm. uh, are, and how that's going to benefit us. I, well, definitely on a backup and workflow yeah. point of view. Yeah, yeah, I could imagine like Optane for a private person or like maybe a small business might not necessarily be the most interesting because it's not necessarily the most affordable. But in the server world, it's a whole other story because you can use it for caching files and all that stuff that makes maybe website responses or data responses uh, um, from the server uh, much, much quicker. And it's interesting to, to know where or to see where, where things might be implemented. Yeah, so um, let's get back to, to the retouching hardware. <laughs> no worries. So, so uh, yeah, with like you're running your uh, super fancy six core, 12 threads, I assume, Windows computer. And what else do you use for processing images? Let's talk about maybe the monitor. How, how important is the monitor to you? I, you said you've been using an iMac before and now you need an external monitor. So what are you using there? Okay, uh, I actually have a Dell 4K monitor. I have a, a hood on top of it so that way I can see the colors. The one that I have, I think, it really, uh, has like a 91 or no, maybe an 89% Adobe color gamut. But, you know, I can still get the job done with it. Uh, I do need to, <laughs> unfortunately, I do need to change it out. But uh, I also just recently got the Wacom Mobile Studio Pro. Oh, nice. Which I've been finding myself retouching quite a bit on that as well and the colors are pretty remarkable on it the only thing is you have to be if you're retouching like something for fashion or for makeup you kind of have to be you know uh, in an environment where there's not too many lights on uh, because of course you can't put a lens or i'm sorry not lens hood a monitor hood uh on your mobile studio pro yeah Yeah, reflections are always a thing so um it does have a beautiful surface where it feels like paper so nothing really reflects off of it it just uh, it, it is nice, like your eyes kind of like will play a little yeah. tricks with you if it's yeah, too always. bright in the room. Always, yeah. um, no matter if you have a clear, clear screen or if a matte finish. So what I do is I have my workstation basically boxed in to block all light that might reflect off of my monitor, which is sometimes a little bit weird because I'm really in a booth almost and um you don't necessarily see a lot of natural light coming yeah but it's like uh, it influences so much of your vision not necessarily if you might have some spots somewhere or a little bit clear but also the environmental light can influence how you perceive color and contrast on your monitor so for critical work i'm always in my my little booth like a super controlled environment and but it's also good to to have the option to do other stuff that is not necessarily the most critical on the go when we're traveling and maybe you want to work in a cafe and take it with us, which is super exciting to me as well, because being stuck in this booth that I am, it's not super pleasant over time. I can imagine, okay, you can spend a little bit of time in your studio and then you're going out, having coffee, keep working and all that stuff, which is super nice with 
like a mobile device with the Wacom, and it has a processor and all the stuff in it, right? Yeah, it's a full-fledged computer, and I can even tether with it as long as it doesn't have to run through Thunderbolt. It has three USB-C ports on it, so yeah, I can hook up my Nikon D850 to it and tether it right into Capture One. And uh, yeah, it, it processes. It doesn't have any hiccups. If there is a hiccup, it's usually because of the cable, which I do need to go to Tether Tools and give me a nice uh, a nicer cable. That's probably one of my downsides. But yeah, it processes quickly, and you know I can edit on the fly. You break out Liquify. It doesn't hang up. Um, it's very, very fast. Nice. Yeah, I'm kind of jealous. I have just a Cintiq that doesn't have a processor, so it's basically just tablet monitor device in it when I'm, I see why someone wants such a, a mobile studio. It's more than just nice to have. It's super practical, actually. It is really nice, and it's not really too bad to have on a photo set either. Like, something that is nice about it is, like, say you have a retoucher on set or you have a creative director on set who's really experienced Wacom. Well, you can just give it to them and they can start going to town on things yeah. uh, right there while you're shooting and they can actually start to write notes. They could be like, hey, Erica, do you see this lighting over here and start drawing arrows on it and stuff like that. It's, it's, it, it can completely change how we do an actual photo shoot. And this is like usually for our big league photo shoots that have a big budget or something like that because usually uh, creative directors aren't with me for the lower stuff but for the bigger stuff it's definitely going to be a nice game changer yeah i can't imagine so do you have any other tools around you for retouching when you're working on your desk or anything i do of course you know i i have to have my mechanical keyboard i just like the way it clicks i just enjoy that sound assume you're using a lot of keyboard shortcuts as well Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, it's funny. It's like uh, at home, I have an Intuos Pro. They do have these buttons that you can map on the side of the Wacom tablet to do anything. And I have uh, made a couple of them, like one's shift and one is alt and the others run some actions. But I never find myself actually using them as much as I should. Mm -hmm. I just naturally, because I've been doing this for so many years, just keep gravitating toward my keyboard. So that's kind of like the setup that I have. I also have ARK system uh, rocket monitors. Those are not screens, they're actual speakers for you folks from the audio world. And of course, I listen to usually electronic music or jazz. Something I'll do to, if I'm really having a problem staying focused is I use this, uh, I go to this website called brain.fm uh -huh. and they play this music that's made by AI. <laughs> And uh, it uh, really helps keep you focused. Um, and uh, it just keeps you in the zone. I don't know what it is, but they, they just play all these frequencies. It just kind of makes you methodically want to just finish the job and not get up and, you know, go watch some TV for a little bit. You just want to stay focused. So it's almost in a sense like Adderall. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, if it works, it works, right? So Yeah, um, yeah. I find myself like I can listen to music, but I've tried watching series and movies while retouching and it doesn't really work for me. And some people can do it, but I cannot. Yeah, it, it really slows me down quite a bit. Uh, you know what really, really, really helps me uh, when I'm on a time crunch is being on a time crunch. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, pressure is always good. It's like... Okay, yeah, I, I, need, I need to get this editorial done in like uh, a day and yeah, pressure's on. Now, if I could retouch that fast, <laughs> normally I would have so much more free time yeah. and I would feel less about procrastinating. I am a little bit of a procrastinator. I sure. admit it. I need to get a little better with it. <laughs> sure. Sometimes you think about like, oh, well, if there's more time, you just spend more time, right? On, on the images. I'm like, oh, the perfection is coming through and you say, oh, this detail could be changed and this and this and yeah oh god that's the worst isn't it and also here's something that gets to me um i'll post a photo on instagram and i'm really excited about it like man this photo looks great and this is at night i'll post on instagram then the next day i wake up and i look at it, it's like oh god i posted it on instagram this looks awful <laughs> 
I don't. You kind of have to let it gel a little bit. You have to, uh, you know, especially when you're tired and your eyes getting all wonky at night after hours. Sometimes you have to. Uh, sometimes you uh, you just stare at an image too long and it messes with you. I find I do this thing where I call calibrating my eyes, where I keep a Vogue catalog or I'm sorry, a mm. Vogue magazine or a Vanity Fair magazine next to me, and I'll actually like just start switching through some pages and looking at it, and then I'll like hold it up next to the picture yeah. on the monitor just to make sure, like you know, I'm not doing something super duper crazy and yeah, and that's a good advice. Yeah. That's a good advice. Yeah. What what I do is I don't have a wallpaper on my Windows machine. I just have a super natural gray color with nothing on it, no icons, no nothing. And I sometimes just switch from working on the images to the desktop, oh, that's smart. just to refresh the eyes because it sets your eyes to neutral again. Because our eyes adapt for color shifts and all that stuff, so it's good to have this neutral color and nothing else on it to to look on for a few seconds. Oh, that's really that's really really smart. And yeah, you're right. Um, I find like uh something that really helped me like take my retouching to the next step was actually creating these uh visual aids like black and white layers mm -hmm. in Photoshop. Uh, when I was doing like you know dodging and burning, or yeah. even uh when I was doing basic cleanup with the healing tool, I found that just had me focus in and I could see a lot more. And it's kind of weird how that works, but I guess it's just, you know, when your brain sees color, yeah. it's just too much for it to take in. Yeah, and also eyes and brain are much more tired, much quicker when you're looking at colors. So working at a black and white, I even know some people, they just have a monochromatic monitor just to work on that stuff. It doesn't even have color. What wow, is that's good? crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't go that way. It's just like just have this one monitor. That's those hardcore guys. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I consider myself quite techy, but I'm sticking to my uh, seven twenty uh, seven inch and my Cintiq, which is like a big monitor and a small monitor. And it's enough for me. I don't need just another one. But sometimes, yeah, I don't know. There's some occasions when you think like, oh, I just need more space. But you're usually messing with yourself and wanting someone that is not really practical over time. Right, right. I hear ya. As we have talked about all the hardware you're using, so what's going on on your computer? How is your workflow usually structured? If you are using Hasselblad files or other files, where do you put them? How do you start? Well, the first thing I always start is something that terrifies me is losing my photos or mm -hmm. losing my work. That is scary. So I, I usually what I'll do is I'll have all the photos when I'm tethering or when I'm downloading them off an SD card. I'll create a folder, year, month, date, underscore, name a project. Yeah. That's how I always name my folders, and that's how I name my files as well. And this will go into Google Drive, uh, or some minor cases, Dropbox. But usually, I, I keep most of my stuff on uh, Google Drive. So when all the photos are going in, as soon as like photos start to hit this folder, they're already being synced onto Google Drive. So I have a hard drive for my Wacom Mobile Studio Pro. I have a Dell XPS laptop as well, and my computer mm -hmm. at home. You know, I can go and work on all of those, yeah. and my files will be there. I don't have to take any gear. I don't have to take a hard drive with me as long as they're all hooked up to the internet. So that's the very first step in securing my work and making sure that if something happens to my gear, the laptop, it doesn't go anywhere. That's very smart. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just I'm paranoid, completely yeah. paranoid. And even, believe it or not, a lot of people are like, oh, back up your stuff on Google Drive or Dropbox. Those are really not backup solutions. They're no. meant for workflow. Yeah. If you want a real backup, create an Amazon S3 bucket and back up your stuff yeah. there. And cold storage. That's a real backup. Yeah. But anyways, getting back on topic, I work with Capture One and uh, Hasselblad's Focus. Mm -hmm. First thing that I do in either Capture One or Hasselblad Focus is I'll do just basic minimal corrections you know chromatic aberrations any lens corrections that need to be made just the basic stuff that i can't fix and a photoshop or you know i i want to make sure that i take full advantage of 
when these raw processors go and scan all the metadata in these files that it's correcting it to the best of the manufacturer's standards. Making sure you have the best possible base image to start with. Exactly, precisely. So uh, I know there are some people out there, they'll go into Capture One, they'll do some color adjustments and tweak it from there. They'll do quite a bit of tweaking to each photo before they bring it out into Photoshop. I personally don't do that. I just do the basic. I like to have yeah. a nice flat base. Well, in terms of, of workflow, I see if a photographer usually, if they are messing with the image as much as they like, but from a retouching standpoint and working for a bigger project where there might be an agency or a bigger client involved, there will always be changes and you might be forced to create variants uh, in terms of the styling of the image. and. Of course, you, you can create variants of the raw files, especially in Capture One. It's quite easy. But usually for me, um, the color styling comes basically last in, in the stacks of in Photoshop right. because I still can make all the changes underneath, right? And that's that's necessary for our professional workflow. So it, it makes a lot of sense to not mess too much with the image and just get them basically all looking the same and correcting them to get them to a point where you start from the same exposure because they might be changing throughout a series a little bit and you might have different color shifts and you, you try to match them before starting in Photoshop and then you get on doing all your, your retouching and stuff. So that usually is for most of us working with changes and multiple rounds of revisions and that usually is the most practical way. So it does make a lot of sense, even though the companies creating the the raw processors often put in more tools and more tools to mess with the images and we often do not rely on them as much as maybe the uh, semi-professional does. Right, right. So, yeah, exactly. So once uh, once I kind of get, you know, the image, like it's white balanced, uh, usually white balanced, um, those are the little minor tweaks that I do, like something basic. Once that's all set and done, I set up my process recipe in Capture One on uh, Focus. I render it out as a 16-bit TIFF. Those go into an output folder because I work in sessions. Mm -hmm. Can you explain why you are choosing TIFF over using Photoshop files? Um, doesn't uh, Photoshop, there is a good reason here, believe me. Uh, it, doesn't Photoshop have like a 2 gig limit? Yeah. Okay, that's, that's why. In terms of like the workflow, it's super annoying to start with a two gigabyte file that has its maximum of two gigabyte and you cannot create, so they have the PSB, which goes over two and even over four gigabytes, but you cannot start with it. There's no, no application. You can just start with a PSB. You, so you always have to start the Photoshop file and then you have to save another file and then you're stuck with, okay, I have this old PSD file and my PSB next to each other. So. For me, there are a couple of reasons. One is the four gigabyte file. And then when I switched quite a while ago to using Capture One, they were not showing you the PSD files as a preview image. And what I like to do is to start with working in Capture One. Every time I'm working on the project, I start opening up the session and opening up the work files from there because I don't have to go through all the files. I just see my recent few projects and open up from there. But you don't see which changes you might have done to an image already and stuff like without opening it up when it was a PSD. So it was another reason to just go to a, a TIFF file because when you're in File Explorer or Capture One, they always show you the preview image. So that was another reason for me to always use TIFF files. So. What I want to ask is, is there any difference in how you you approach uh, the images when using Capture One versus Hasselblad Focus? Or is it basically the same procedure? Basically the same procedure. I just use the program. I mean, like, honestly, if Capture One just sold me something, it's like, this is just a raw processor. We're just going to process all of your raw files. I'd be happy with it. I'd be like, okay, you guys do a great job at that. Um, that's <laughs> yeah. That's about uh, it's about the same way with focus. I just use it for very basic things. Yeah, for me, I just use it very on a very basic level. And then you're opening up in Photoshop, and then you get started with all the retouching magic and right. So in Photoshop, uh, once I open up the file, the very first thing that I do is uh, I will 
create a cleaning layer. And I think that's pretty much the standard with uh, yeah. with anywhere is that you always start off with the cleaning layer, go in, knock everything out that you can see really quick with the healing brush. And then after this, I know some people are going to call me out on this, like, well, really? But uh, I do frequency separation. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, and from this point, uh, the very first thing that I'll do is I'll break out the mixer brush on the correcting tones layer, the layer that's in the middle between the high yep. frequency and the low frequency. I've tried to teach this technique to people, and to me, it's really, really simple. You go in and you do these little tiny small circles in the mm-hmm. area just to smooth out all the little crevices and, you know, you're not making it look flat. It's like you're you're just... You're really selective with uh, how you approach the image there. But it's the, all the techniques, even dodge and burn, they are super simple when, when it comes down. It's super basic to say, okay, you're going in with a brush and making it lighter here and darker here, but it's not looking the same if it does someone who is experienced with someone who is not. Yeah, so I don't know. I probably need to work on my approach on how I explain it a little bit more. But uh, here's something interesting that I just recently started doing. Prior to this, uh, I would do my frequency separation. And then on top of that, I would start doing my dodging and burning. Series of dodging and burning, uh, fixing certain elements of the image and contouring the image as well. But uh, what I've done now is I was like, wait a minute. You know, when you're dodging and burning, you're dodging and burning on top of the texture. And that might be, uh, you know, that might be like jeopardizing the texture just a little bit. And I want to preserve the texture as much as possible. I, re- I really loved texture. <laughs> so what I've done is I've started putting color correction adjustment layers and dodging and burning in between the high frequency and the low frequency layers and frequency separation I'm finding that uh, my skin texture actually looks a lot more crisp. There's more oomph to it. And it's, uh, I find that it's just made my retouching a little tiny bit better that I started doing that series. So, yeah, now I'm going in and doing all my dodging and burning. And then I'll go in, probably add some a little bit of vibrance to where the gels are firing for a particular shot. From there, I'll... I might do a little bit of hue saturation where I isolate a certain color and like maybe shift the hue just a little tiny bit color balance. But usually mostly where I live when it comes to adjustment layers is the vibrance, hue saturation, color balance, and curves. Those are like my go-tos. Yeah, I mean, curves are super powerful, even though they look super basic. Yeah, and sometimes there's selective color as well. If I, you know, I have to match certain things to certain pantones or something like that but and i'll do that all between the high and the low and uh, once i'm finished with all that now it's time that i can get outside of this frequency separation group what i'll do from here is i'll do a stamp merge and from there i'll turn that into a smart object Mm -hmm. The first thing I'll do is I'll go into a liquify tool and just fix like whatever I have to push around and smudge around and stuff like that. And then from there, what I'll do is I'll go into, I'll run like a camera raw filter. Mm-hmm. And that is where I put my big tweaks on. So all the color tweaks and stuff like this. And... Yeah, all the big color tweaks. Yeah. And because it's a smart object, I can always come back and let's right. just say, oh man, I have to go back and like fix something and frequency separation or... Uh, there's something I just didn't see, so I'm going to have to go back. Well, you know, you can always do another stamp merge and just easily grab your camera raw filter and the liquify settings from that one yeah. and just drag cool. it onto the new one. So, yeah, it's uh, it's that's that's usually my workflow. And, of course, after that, I'll do a sharpening, a series of sharpening, and that's it. That's a, that's a finished product. Or at least it's a round one that goes to an art director or yeah. a creative director, and I wait for their feedback. Makes a lot of sense to use the smart object you have the capability of just going back. And I usually do the same. So because it's just super convenient to just being able to work underneath, even though you have done your liquify. And if I, however, am required to deliver different color tweaks, I will then use layer comps. If a client decides for one or the other, it's just one click of a button. And I don't have to look how the layers were named and which one were included in which look. I just click one button and I'm basically done. 
maybe sometimes oh, a little bit overlooked to use layer comps or not. That's actually really smart. I fortunately have the luxury to where I'll bring the creative director in front of me and say, like, okay, tell me, uh, tell me where you want these settings yeah. sometimes. And that's usually how I get polished uh, product. The other thing is uh, I have to sometimes be careful because I tend to reach that four gig limit mm. fairly easy. So I, <laughs> so I have to, you know, I, I try to be, I, I try to be a little bit uh, conservative with my workflow and not get too, too crazy with creating too many layers. But uh, that is something, that is a smart idea. I should probably start trying that out. Well, yeah, it doesn't make sense in, in every project, but sometimes you can easily get lost when you're, let's say you uh, want to combine different layers and they're all curves basically, but you can, out of maybe five curves, you can create four different looks, uh, just how you combine them. And with layer comes, does it all for you? Derek, I learn something new every day. <laughs> well, we all learn. All the time. It's sometimes it's these little details. It's like learning all your keyboard shortcuts that makes every now and then makes you faster and more efficient. And one day we might discover something that is not super helpful in our basic workflow. But when we have to problem solve, you just recall this one thing that you have heard somewhere and can use it to solve your problem. Yeah, you know, every once in a while, I'll uh, go maybe to like one of these sites like Creative Live. Mm -hmm. or so on and you know i'll just see like you know somebody who really knows like what they're doing like Pradic. um he completely changed my uh uh workflow like I, i decided to just sit down and you know even though i've been using photoshop for years and years there's always something buried in there that somebody right. else uses in their workflow uh or they do something in a series of ways that you're like man why didn't i think of that mm -hmm. Or why didn't I do that? And, uh, you know, it's just like you might have to watch this thing for like 16 hours, but you'll pick up three different things that changes how you work. Yeah, sometimes it's if you know already a lot, you have to spend a lot of time to pick up like little details that might help you somewhere. Yeah, it is a little frustrating, but I find when you watch videos at 2x speed, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very, very helpful. So that's usually how I watch most tutorials nowadays. I'll just go through it like oh, really quick, like 2x. I yeah. do that with podcast usually but for video i haven't tried it yet yeah and uh, i find if it, there is something that i could use i have to actually go and do it so that way i can remember how to do it yeah uh in photoshop so i'll pause it and then like i'll play it normally and then like i'll watch and then i'll do it myself and then once i've done it then it's locked in my brain i now understand how to do this and i remember to do this mm -hmm. and we always have to go in with the expectation to not being a master in it. When, when we make a change, it takes a little bit to get used to and to get the best out of every change we make in our workflow or in a technique we're using. Right, right, exactly. But over time and practice, it might be the technique that makes you twice as efficient and twice as fast, maybe. Right, right. And I found that when I was younger that... That was definitely my case. I was just really arrogant and I could be a much, much better retoucher and Photoshop artist today if I was just a little tiny bit more humble and didn't think so much of my Photoshop skills and just, you know, sat and uh, listened and, uh, you know, really absorbed these tutorials. But the older you get, like the more you kind of figure out you're an idiot when you're younger, yeah. <laughs> in well, my case. It happens to us all, especially with uh, like Photoshop. We all... At some point, think, oh, I know so much. And at some point, you meet someone who does know a lot more or you are basically stuck with certain routines and you then discover, okay, they have in a whole world that I do not know anything of yet. And yeah, it can hit you really hard and knock down to, to uh, well, put you in the place where you really are. I used to uh, work with Adobe After Effects quite a bit, and I thought I knew quite a bit about the software. And I started meeting people who actually go and do everything on it. They program everything through ActionScript. And uh, I haven't used After Effects in a while, but very humbling. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I don't know anything about After Effects now. So <laughs> it's really nice to run into those people who kind of put you into perspective. They make me go home and want to read a book yeah. or do some tutorials and get my skills up to that level. Well, yeah, I mean, that's how you get to the top, basically, yeah. 
and stay relevant. Because I always say like you have to make time also for your business to work on your skills and to learn new things. And because otherwise doing nothing, it's no progress. It's just going backwards and everyone yeah. is getting better and you're not. The number one thing you can invest in is yourself. And by yourself, I mean not getting a manicure and buying a car and a house. I mean knowledge. Knowledge is the number one thing that you can invest in for yourself. And that's not just any knowledge. That's usable knowledge uh, toward your profession, what you're incredibly passionate, something that makes you more valuable in your industry. So that's the number one thing that I tell young people to invest in. The second, young thing, uh, the second thing I tell them is uh, pretty much the S&P 500, which is the stock market terms, but <laughs> that's another subject, so we won't go there. Yeah, we might get into that another time. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because I myself, I'm not familiar with stock terms that much. So we, we maybe can agree on like retouching, especially when you're working on a series or commercial jobs, it forces you to spend quite some time in front of your computer or tablet computer. And what are you doing to compensate for that in terms of health and fitness? Oh, so, oh God, this is such a good subject. Uh, yeah, right. And even for photography, I talk about this, but uh, let me answer your question and then I might jump off into photography. Yeah. Uh, so, Number one thing is the older you get, you're going to find that flexibility is a little bit more important than strength. And when you're sitting all the time, that's really bad on your hip flexors. Yes, I know what you're talking about because I suffered um, inherited disc and that is from sitting all the time. So I have to take care of my hip flexors especially. Oh gosh, yeah. So your hip flexors... If they're out of whack, what happens is they start to pull down your hip. Yeah. If your hamstrings are tight because you've been sitting a lot, they start to pull down your hip. Yeah. And what happens is they don't pull down your hips evenly. They'll start to shift your hips to one side or another, which builds pressure on your back. And that puts a lot of pressure on your spine. And that is a great way to, you know, actually get a herniated disc later. But you'll find you'll start to have a lot of lower back problems. Yeah. And if you let this continue for years and years and your hip flexors begin to get tighter and your hamstrings begin to get tighter, you'll find that, you know, this could develop into a minor case of scoliosis because mm -hmm. uh, it creates a curve in your spine or it makes your back a little bit overdeveloped on one side and less developed on the other. And this is going to uh, reach all the way up and start even giving you migraines because, you know, it's just your, your whole entire body is out of alignment. So, yeah, it's all connected. So what usually also happens is like the hip flexors and your shoulders coming in forward and you compensate for it by putting your neck up to look at the computer and everything. And that all works together or in that case against you. And uh, you have to take care of the hip flexors, take, like uh, stretch your breast open for to take pressure away of your upper back because that usually also gets tight and your shoulders coming in forward and you get this issues with the upper back so right so with what i do to ensure that i have good posture i have a very good chair i have a herman miller chair oh a friend of mine was recently telling me about them and was thinking about yeah. getting it and was thinking yeah it's probably a good investment <laughs> For retouchers, it's a very good investment. They're on the pricey end, but they're really good. Yeah. And what, if you do get it, don't use the default settings. You have to tune it toward your body and toward how you interact with your computer. In my case, I don't, I, I don't have any armrests. I took the armrest off. Mm -hmm. And the chair is lifted just high enough to where the table surface that I'm working on, my elbows can lay parallel with it yeah no problem my elbows and arms so i've made sure that the adjustments are correct so that's how i'm working i always i do tend to get in bad posture here and there like when i get into something and you'll start to feel your neck get a little yeah tight. that happens uh, a lot especially when you when you focus on something you tend to not pay attention about how you're sitting yeah so i will like get up and stretch a little bit the uh, the basic stretches that i do is uh, to relieve tension is, you know, one, I'll bend down and touch my toes really quick. Two, I'll actually take my hands and grasp them behind my back 
stretch my arms out and bend over to where like this opens up your shoulders quite a bit. If you can still get to that point and putting your arms together. Yeah. And then of course I'll do some basic neck stretches, but uh, doing things like yoga is very beneficial, especially the older you get. Mm -hmm. I think once you get your mid thirties, you should definitely consider yoga. Yep. I do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu as well. It's a pretty rough sport, but it's really good cardio. And you have to be flexible as well. Yeah, and I'm going to jump outside of flexibility and strength. And I know a lot of retouchers and artists who, you know, they're unfortunately overweight. They don't have good health. And I like to say that your mind is in tune with your body. You know, your, your brain is just another organ that works with the rest of your body. If your liver is not working, that's eventually going to uh, lead to one day your heart not working too well. Everything is connected. So us knowing this, you know, the same goes for your brain as well. If uh, for some reason you're not sleeping right, you're not eating right, well, that will take a toll on your creative capability. That will take a toll on how you can envision a project and that will take a toll on you being a valuable retoucher or a compositor or a photoshop artist or a photographer having good sleep and having good health is a really important aspect of our industry yeah that's so important and i think that's super valuable tips that you have given now uh, if uh if there's anything i say take care of your health first and then invest uh, invest in your knowledge those would be the two important things I would tell people. That's so true. That's so true. Especially in, like we're playing the game in the long run and not just looking for what's coming tomorrow. Right, exactly. That's super valuable information here. And you usually I would ask like your number one tip for everyone who wants to get into the industry. And you already said is like take care of your health and take care of your education. So what is one thing to keep an eye on when someone is new in this industry, maybe especially in New York? What, what advice would you give someone who's young and wants to get into the creative field via photography or retouching? I can tell you what, if somebody wanted to move to New York, they should realize that they need to first control their ego. You must be humble. No matter how much knowledge you think you have, Trust me, there will be people here who will make you want to cry and make you feel like you know nothing. Embrace that. Try to gain as much knowledge as you can. The second thing I would say is, I, I always say this, every night before you go to bed, stare at beautiful imagery, the type of imagery you aspire to create or retouch. And that will lock into your subconscious what images should look like when you're retouching. Number three would be do free retouching work for the best photographers you can find. Offer to retouch for them because you want to have some real practical work in your portfolio when you move up here or down here if you're coming from Canada. And number four would be, you know, it's going to be tough, say, when you first move to a place like New York City just hang in there, believe in yourself, constantly continue to upgrade yourself with knowledge. And you kind of have to think of yourself as a World of Warcraft player or a Dungeons and Dragons player. Mm. Uh, there's always a higher level. So you yeah. have to keep working and working and working to get yourself to that higher level. And upgrade your skills. Yes. And finally, the last thing is you have to go to events, network, and meet people. You must do this. Because it does get to a point in New York to where you could be the best retoucher here. However, if nobody knows that and you're not a personable person, like you don't have good communication skills, you're not going out and meeting other people, you'll be the best retoucher in New York that gets no work. So you have to network. That's so true. I couldn't say it better. And I was asking for just one tip you gave me four, which is super incredible. And yeah, again, it was a pleasure to hang out and nerd out on all the topics like especially computers and nerd out on photoshop and everything so to wrap it up to learn from you or to connect with you where should people go i know erica barker 
com is your website where people can find your work. And I know you also have contact form and your Instagram. So which is your Instagram handle and the other platforms you're, you're using to connect with people? Where can people find you? Instagram is actually getting me more work than my own website. So if you guys want to reach out, my Instagram handle is my name, Erica, E-R-I-K-A. That's spelled the German way. Erica Barker, B-A-R-K-E-R. -E so again, that's Erica Barker on Instagram. And uh, just uh, don't get mad at me if I don't respond right away. Sometimes it takes me like a week because it's just New York and I get so overwhelmed with things. Yeah. I am trying to get a little better with re uh, getting back to people. Again, it was a pleasure to hang out and chat with you. Likewise, definitely a pleasure to hang out and get to know you a little bit more. Okay, so have a nice day over there. Talk to you soon. Alrighty, you too. Enjoy your night. I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. So this was it for today. I really hope you enjoyed our interview with Erika. There was a lot of valuable information out there. So head over to boutiqueretouching.com forward slash podcast to follow up with the show notes. Leave us a comment how you liked it. If you have not subscribed to the podcast, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you are listening the podcast to. And I see you in the next episode.